is Cedar Hills Community Church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a place to be loved, a place to belong, and a place to serve. Thanks again for choosing to worship with us today here in person or online. I'm Steve Poole. I'm one of the staff members here. I'm going to be bringing the message today. I'm continuing our series that's called Jesus on Every page. And it's kind of to wrap up, we've been doing this Bible recap, reading the Bible in the year, listening to a podcast that gives some commentary on it. And uh, as we went through that, we continued to see, and, and the, the, the author of the podcast continues to bring out the, the, the Bible recap, that Jesus is really throughout the whole of scriptures, whether it's Genesis all the way through Revelation. So um, we've been looking at the Bible and, and, and dividing it into different sections by how they're grouped. The, the Torah, the Old Testament history. Then last week we talked about the, the, the Psalms and all of the poetry. And today we're going to be digging into the biblical prophets. So as we get ready to do this, I want to share a conversation I had with Kathy about the prophets. We've been doing the Bible recap, and, and sometimes we're a little bit behind, and Kathy was catching up the last couple weeks as we were doing some painting at our house. She was listening to large sections of it, and she was listening to the prophets, and one night she came to bed, and she's like, these prophets, these prophets are really nuts, aren't they? <laughs> she, she, won, she wondered out loud to me, what would we do if someone started acting like that today? What, if, what would we do if somebody started doing the things the Old Testament prophets did in our church? And we would probably think they were a little bit crazy and kooky. And I appreciate her honesty in the answer because maybe when you read the prophets, if you have, you've had that same feeling. Here's some of the eccentric things the prophets did. And they often did these things to illustrate the truth that God gave them to speak to the people. So Isaiah, this is in Isaiah 20, he walked around naked and sandalous for three years to make a point. In Ezekiel 4 and 5, we find the prophet Ezekiel, he laid on his side for over a year and cooked all of his meals over animal dung. And Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 13, we see that he buried his underwear by the river and later went back because God told him and dug off his dirty, worn underwear and he carried it around this filthy mess to show people this is what your sin looks like to God. Pretty eccentric and crazy stuff. And there, the, uh, Pastor Kent added this one. Hosea named one of his kids not loved. <laughs> How'd you like to go to Christmas and say, oh, hey everybody, hey not loved, thanks for coming this year. You know how we feel about you. <laughs> These prophets also, when in their writings, they contained some of the strangest visions, some of the most fantastic imagery in the whole Bible. And last week, Pastor Ken introduced his, his teaching on poetry to talk about how not many of us really like to read poetry. Well, I would guess even less of us are super excited about the complexity of biblical prophecy. But there is a lot of beauty there, and there's a lot of truth there, and we're going to talk about it today. So, to help us understand biblical prophecy, first I want to define the word prophecy. In the, the biblical historical context, prophecy didn't have anything to do with tarot cards, or it, it had everything to do with a message from God. Prophecy was a message from God. And it didn't always have to be about the future or long 
into the future. It could be about right now, the message God had for you. The prophets then were messengers. They delivered God's word, God's message to the people. There's this whole group from Isaiah to Malachi in your Bibles that are prophetic books. They're a collection of God's messages to his people and to, to Israel, but also some of these messages were to individual people, some of these messages were to other nations, and as we see today, some of the messages from the prophets ring true for us today. There were messages about the hope in a Messiah, a coming king or savior, and that, that's the hope that we still have. The prophets were commissioned by God. You just, the kids just read a story about Isaiah, how his lips were touched because he, he said, I'm an unclean man, so the angel touched his lips with the stone, and then he, 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 God said, who will go for us? Who can we send? And, and Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And then he went and he prophesied in God's name. Or Ezekiel, he eats a scroll as if he's internalizing God's message that he would speak out. And the, the prophet John from the Revelation repeats that same scenario when we see him being commissioned to, to speak these prophetic words. If we could summarize the prophecy, the, the main point of the prophecy in two things. This is a really simple summary. Miss this nuance, but this would be the simplest way if you could remember one thing. Biblical prophecy is about warning and hope. I got that from the Gospel Project. The biblical prophecy is about warning and hope. And this warning is repeated. And when you read through them, sometimes you get tired of the warnings because it's woe to this. It's, it's, it's disasters coming on these people. But the warning has a purpose. The warning is primarily to God's people, Israel, who have been unfaithful to him. And God has two complaints, and they're listed in all the different prophets. We're going to look at how they're listed in Hosea in just a minute. But the, the, um, what, what, he was, what he said is people were doing wrong is two things. One, they worshipped other gods. And two, they were unjust with the needy and the poor. Those are the two main complaints he had against his people is that they were worshipping other gods and that they were unjust. So let's look at Hosea for a second. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to look at just some examples before we get into our major text. But in Hosea 4, it'll also be on our screens. I'm not going to read all of this. I'm going to just read the first verse. But Hosea 4, 12 through 13, you can read the rest of it later. But it says this, My people consult wooden idols, and diviners' rods speak to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. That was his biggest complaint. They were unfaithful to God. And the whole book of Hosea, there's this big analogy where God is saying that our faithfulness to God is similar to like a faithfulness between a husband and a wife. And so when we are unfaithful, it's similar to like he uses the word prostitution here. But God's complaint over and over again is that his people are unfaithful. They're worshiping other gods. In Hosea 12, 7 and 8, we see it this way. The merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich. I have become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will not find any iniquity in me, any iniquity or sin. They were proud in the way they had cheated other people to become rich in dishonest ways and God said that is wrong and that is part of why he was warning that God's judgment was coming that if they didn't repent there would be an exile and the people of Israel they would be conquered and taken away from the promised land and away from the promised city of Jerusalem 
But God's warning didn't just end with his people. It went on to other countries. If you read the prophets, you'll hear, you'll hear, woe to Edom and Tyre and Sidon, woe to Nineveh, Babylon, Persia, all these other nations are included because God's sovereignty goes over all the nations. And while he might use Babylon for a time, to have judgment over his people Israel, judgment is coming for Babylon, and we'll see that later. But in the midst of all this warning, in the midst of all this judgment, there's hope. And this is the hope we see throughout the prophets. There's a hope that God is faithful to show mercy and forgiveness even when his people are unfaithful. It's repeated throughout the prophets that God will be faithful even though we are unfaithful. So our hope is in God's mercy and grace. This is expressed, here's another passage that just really illustrates this point, but there's so many I could have picked. If you turn to Jeremiah 23, you'll see the hope that the people find. In Jeremiah 23, 3 through 6, it says this, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them. I will bring them back to my fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they will fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the, day is, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David David's, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the, in the land." And in these days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. We see God in this passage. He promised to bring his people back from the exile, to gather them like sheep and to put a shepherd over them. And we see even the promise of the good shepherd, this faithful branch of the line of David, the faithful branch, the righteous one is Jesus. It's Jesus. We see right here in Jeremiah, the promised hope is that God would be faithful to bring his people back, but even more, God would be faithful to send his son to die on the cross, to pay the price for our sins and to rise again, defeating sin and death. Jesus is our ultimate hope. Jesus is our ultimate hope, and he's throughout the prophets. The Bible says, for you have been saved by grace, you have been saved through faith, by, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so, lest any man should boast. This is the story. We started in Genesis, God created everything and it was good, but we messed it up, we fell, we chose our own selfish sins, and we have continued to do that. And throughout history we see man continuing to mess it up with our selfishness, with our hate, with our envy, with our anger. But we see Jesus comes to redeem us. He is the vehicle of redemption. Through him we are made new. And then we see this restoration process begins. The Holy Spirit empowers it to make us new. And then one day the restoration project will be complete. Jesus will come again. And it says in Revelation, there'll be a new heaven, a new earth, like a new Eden, if you will, where there's no crying, there's no suffering, there's no pain, and Christ will reign there forever with his people. And that's the promised hope we have. Before we read in our larger passage, our kind of case study of what the, the, the prophets look like, I want to talk about one other issue. It's called apocalyptic literature. 
Turn to your neighbor and say what you think apocalyptic literature might mean. Go. Three, two, one. I don't know what you talked about, but when I hear apocalypse, I think about the end of the world coming. But here's a little bit of information about what it meant originally. The term apocalypse was a Greek term, and it's in the title of the book of Revelation, and it simply means unveiling. Apocalypse is an unveiling. So apocalyptic literature is literature in the Bible, and it's throughout the prophets where the veil is lifted. You can see it says it right here. It's a type of biblical literature that emphasizes the lifting of the veil between heaven and earth, the revelation of God and his plan for the world. So in apocalyptic literature, we see the, God's plan for the world, for the future. Sometimes we see visions. The passage that was read from Isaiah, that was apocalyptic literature. He saw a vision of God's throne room in heaven and he didn't even know how to describe it. So he uses these big metaphors and that can often, I think, throw us off the track when we get to reading the prophecies. We see these visions and we don't know how to interpret them, so we just give it up. But I hope we can all become a little more, uh, a little more excited about reading biblical prophecy because there's so much truth. And think about it, it's the unveiling. It's the only place we get to see God's throne room described is in the prophets with this apocalyptic literature. Our main example we're going to look at here is going to be Daniel 2. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, we're going to read a larger passage there. And like I said before, it's going to be like a case study. I think in Daniel 2, you see all of these elements. You see the judgment. You see the hope. You see the apocalyptic imagery. You see it all kind of in this one passage. To help set the stage as you turn there, in Daniel chapter 2, he, Daniel is going to be telling King Nebuchadnezzar about a dream he had. The king said, I don't, want you, I don't want any fake pretenders interpreting the dream after I tell them. I need somebody who can tell me my dream and then interpret it. And the only one who could do it was Daniel with the help of God. So this is the, this is the dream. Before I read it, I want to offer this blessing to you. May the Lord be with you. Daniel 2, 31 through 45. Your majesty... As we were, you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you. And its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. The chest and arms were silver. The stomach and thighs were bronze. The legs were iron. And the feet were partly iron and partly clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it and struck the statue at the feet of iron and fired clay, crushing them. And the iron and the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, they were shattered and became like chaff in the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the earth. 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell you, king, the interpretation. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the earth. 
A fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything. <clears throat> Just like iron crushes and shatters, it will crush and smash the other kingdoms. You saw some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay. The part of the kingdom will be strong and part of it brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, and they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fired clay. Verse 44. In those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. This kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It will itself endure forever. You saw the stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it and crush the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told my king what will happen in the future. This dream is certain and its interpretation reliable. May God bless the reading of his word. So this is a prophecy. It's a message from God. And first of all, it's to King Nebuchadnezzar because he was the one who had the dream. And he would have initially probably recognized my kingdom doesn't last forever. <laughs> I thought I was setting up this great kingdom. It would last forever. But God in this dream is revealing the future that his kingdom would reign, that God had given him power to reign over the whole world for a time, but it would come to an end. And then we see also this stone, and we're going to talk about its interpretation in just a minute. Here's a quick picture of what the statue might have looked like from my study Bible. I'm going to read just a, a brief uh, a couple of sentences from my, uh, the, the commentary that went along with it. The head, was, the head of gold was Babylon, and that's directly in the passage. The chest of silver was the Medo-Persian Empire that came next. The legs of iron was the Roman Empire, and the feet of iron clay was maybe the end of the Roman Empire, or it was likely uh, some other kingdom um, that, that is kind of a future kingdom. The kingdoms of today, even, could be this, this Rome or this new Babylon. Um, here's what he says. The decreased value may symbolize the moral decline of each succeeding kingdom. The increased strength refers to the harsher domination of each successive kingdom would oppose on its subjects. Daniel also sees the stone that would shatter the final kingdom and grow into a mountain that filled the whole earth. This stone is the kingdom of God. So we saw the warning it had to King Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom wouldn't last forever. We see this as a warning to all kingdoms that come, even the kingdoms today, that God is sovereign and your kingdom won't last forever. The only king that will is the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and our hope is in that kingdom. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God so much, I would say it's almost a key feature of his preaching. Did you know, I was in my studies, I found out 93 verses in the, in the New Testament, in, in the Gospels, 93 times Jesus references the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which are chiefly the same idea. Here's a couple of passages to see what Jesus had to say about it. <clears throat> Luke 4, 43 says this, But then he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for this is why I was sent. <clears throat> I was sent for this purpose. When Jesus was commissioning his disciples to send them out, like this, to send them out on mission, this is what he said: "Heal the sick in it. That's in a town. Heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. The kingdom of God has come near you. 
In Matthew 21, I think he really neatly ties together these two things, the stone and the kingdom, when he says this. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become that cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruit. Whoever falls in the stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever it falls, it will shatter. And Ephesians 2.21 says, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So this cornerstone that Jesus mentions, that's a part of the kingdom of God, this cornerstone that was mentioned in Daniel's prophecy that's falling down, that's going to destroy all these kingdoms, is Jesus' life work, is the gospel, is the love of Jesus Christ that he came to earth, died on the cross, and paid the price for our sins and rose again. This is the essence of the, of the kingdom. And this is what brings about the kingdom. We, you see, it talks about us, this kingdom being present in us. We are the body of Christ here on earth. And I think we've been called to be ambassadors for this kingdom, sharing the truth of God's love with everyone and inviting them to join us. This kingdom is now in us, but it's also forever in that we see Christ is coming again. Not all the promises about the kingdom of God have been fulfilled yet. We see in Christ that we can have his righteousness, but it hasn't been made complete, and it will be when he comes again. Paul describes the hope we have in Christ's return in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-17 this way. But we do not want to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, but you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you at the, by, the, by a word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would ascend from heaven with a cry and a command, with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then all who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This is this hope that we have. It starts with, after Genesis, it says that there's a promise that that the head of the snake will be crushed. And that's the prophecy of Jesus. And it goes through the Old Testament history books, through through um, through Psalms and into the prophets. All of these things, the poetry, speak of the hope we have in Christ. So what do we do? with all this truth. Here's some applications that I, I think you might uh, do this week. One thing would be this. We've talked about it. Pastor Kenny even showed a video. The Bible Project. If you go to their website, search The Bible Project. They've got great videos that offer commentary to help you understand. They've got a video on apocalyptic literature that expands on the inter- in things I introduced. They've got a video on how to read prophets. They've got summary books if you're going through any of the prophets. They can have a book they will summarize it and give you some of the key themes to look for. It's a great resource. Otherwise, this week, you might reflect on the 93 verses about the kingdom of God in heaven. I have a link that has all of those listed we'll be sharing with you. So you can go back through and look at all those up. If you're doing the Bible recap right now, we're going through the Gospels. I know last week as I was reading some of the passages I was seeing over and over again, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. 
And it, as I was preparing, it helped remind me the importance of it. And, verse, and the third way would be spend some time this week rereading Daniel 2 and reflecting on this, this idea that the kingdom of heaven is, is here. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is, is among us. And, and Christ is that kingdom. And how are we being ambassadors? As you, as a person, how are you being an ambassador for the kingdom this week? As a small group, if you're in one of those, how is your small group being an ambassador to your neighbors? If you're, uh, as a church, how are we being an ambassador to our community, to Cedar Rapids, to the greater Cedar Rapids corridor area? And I think those are the questions that the, that the prophets beg us to ask and that Daniel begs us to ask. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. We thank you that while we know judgment comes, that you are ultimately in control and you are sovereign. And that judgment is not the final answer. That we have hope. We have hope in Jesus Christ. We have hope in a God who didn't sit back and observe history, but entered into humanity. Emmanuel, God with us, you took on flesh you took on our sins at the cross and you, you beat death when you rose again and that's the hope we have to have victory over death, to rise again, to live with you forever in the new heaven, in the new earth. God, I pray that that hope would be something that takes such hold of our hearts and our minds that we can't help but be ambassadors and share it with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our friends at school. God, I pray that people would, would see this truth, not just in our words, but in the way that we live our lives. God, give us hope in the midst of a world that has a lot of earthly kingdoms in place, where there's a lot of despair. Help us to see that ultimately they don't win. They don't have the final answer. That you have established a kingdom in Christ that reigns forever. And that we know that your kingdom doesn't reign through force and power, but through transformed hearts and renewed minds. God, please transform our hearts and renew our minds this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. If you would like to support the ministry of Cedar Hills, visit www.cedarhillscr.org.